Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. Today's episode is part of a series on Congress. Last spring, the Gray Center hosted a research roundtable for new papers on Congress and the administrative state. We called it First Branch, Second Thoughts. A variety of scholars discussed new research on ways in which Congress relates to the administrative state and ways in which it might be reformed. Now, months later, we're bringing the authors back to discuss their papers with thoughtful commentators. And so it's my pleasure to welcome today's guests. Philip Wallach is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, writing on Congress and the administrative state. His new paper for this series focuses on Congress from the 1980s onward, and it's titled The Revolution That Wasn't, Conservatives Against Congress, 1981 to 2018. This paper and the others in our series is available on the Gray Center's website. Phil, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. And we're lucky to be joined also by Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. She's a thoughtful scholar of Congress, as exemplified by her book, Exceptions to the Rule, Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the United States Senate. And she's responsible for the Brookings Institution's long-running project, Vital Statistics on Congress. And I should add, for several years, she's taught a course at George Mason on the public policy process. Molly, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Phil, let's just start with the big picture. What is the modern conservative view of Congress and, and how did it come about? Okay, so I think there's been endless discussion over the last two decades of just how in love with the presidency conservatives have become. Um, Certainly that was a mainstay of commentary during the George W. Bush administration. But there's just been these endless debates over the theory of the unitary executive and talk about just, just why conservatives are so enamored of the presidency. But there's another side of that coin, which is much less considered, which is that conservatives really became an anti-Congress party uh, sometime in the last three or four decades. Um, And as much as their presidentialism kind of seems like it's inherited from progressive Wilsonian tradition, so too is their suspicion of of a parochial and short-sighted Congress. Um, And in my paper, I sort of talk about especially how things shaped up in the 1980s when the Republican Party had already been in the House minority for three decades. And they had really a, a bitterly cynical view of Congress's pathologies. And they built it up into a kind of a synthesis, um, con- which was um, built up by legal scholars, veterans of the executive branch, think tankers. And this was really a, a, a fairly well-developed critique of, of Congress as an institution. I should also say that it was shared to a surprisingly great extent by conservatives in Congress itself, um, and especially by uh, Newt Gingrich, who was sort of the rising star of the House GOP during the 1980s, and somebody who had really striking messaging consistency about what a corrupt institution Congress was from the time he first ran for the House in 1974 to his first successful run in 1978. 
The way you frame up the beginning of the paper, it's as much it, Gingrich's approach is as much a reaction to the long to the the Senate Minority Leader Bob Michael as it is to the Democratic leadership in Congress. Right, the House the House Minority Leader Michael. Um, yeah, sorry. And right, so Gingrich felt that Republicans in in the House had simply resigned themselves to permanent minority status and sort of were hanging around to see how many breadcrumbs they could get uh, from the majority if they behaved themselves. And he thought that was absolutely the wrong approach. He thought there was a big opportunity for Republicans if they campaigned hard against this corrupt institution, if they denounced Democratic leaders as tyrants um, and, and sort of created set pieces designed to expose their abuses of power. He was great at it, um, it has to be said, and throughout the 1980s sort of built on a series of successes uh, in framing things this way. And so eventually, you know, Gingrich's strategy of running against the corrupt Congress paid off. Uh, Republicans found themselves in the minority, and he found himself excuse me, found themselves in the majority after 1994, and he found himself in the speakership. Um, And so then the question is, what kind of place would Congress be under Republicans? And here I say, well, because Republicans didn't really have a positive theory of what a legislature is supposed to be, they ended up uh, acting as if Gingrich had sort of been elected with a mandate similar to a president of the United States. They thought that Clinton's election in 1992 was a fluke caused by Perot's candidacy, and they thought Perot voters were with them at at that point. So they thought um, Republicans are really in in command and ought to set the the agenda and make demands on the White House and turn the country around. Um, but, But they really didn't seem to appreciate the particular institutional strengths and weaknesses of Congress, in many ways, Gingrich seemed determined to go mano a mano with Clinton, but he found himself bested in those in those contests, um, both because of the president's superior ability to command sort of the, the media narratives, but also just because um, Clinton was more willing to wield the veto pen than, than Gingrich had, had realized that he w- would be. Um, and so you, you had sort of a, a really striking fidelity to the promises of the contract with America that, that Republicans had run on in 1994 in terms of what they put up for votes in the House. They, they really adhered to their promises to put things up to votes, but they didn't really have all that much success in driving policy change uh, or dismantling the great society. Um, And my argument is that in part was because they didn't have a legislative strategy. They just had uh, a determination to put themselves sort of up in a kind of referendum and and they lost. And after that, they were almost completely without direction. It's amazing sort of after they lose the decisive fight in the winter of 1995 to 96, the wheels sort of come off the conservative reform efforts. And and for the remainder of the 90s, uh, they don't really show up. And during the George W. Bush presidency, when when Republicans did sometimes have 
both houses of Congress and the White House, um, this reform agenda just really had, had disappeared. Um, so I, I think in the paper, I'm trying to argue that if conservatives had a more positive understanding of what kind of policy development a legislature can do, perhaps if they had been willing to pursue a less centralized strategy, they would have had more success in gradually steering the ship of American state uh, in directions that, that they would have liked rather than sort of uh, slamming up against a wall and not changing as much as, we, as they, they would have liked. Just to set the stage a little bit more, let me just ask a couple of quick questions. You know, one, looking back before this era that you're writing about, you know, you said that conservatives didn't have a fully formulated view of Congress. But for decades, as when Republicans were out of the White House, you know, you had people like James Burnham, who you quote in the paper and, and others formulating an entire constitutional theory of Congress. How did that all sort of fall by the wayside at the point at which you pick up the story? And second, I'm curious how this does relate to the reinvigoration of conservative sort of appreciation of presidential power in the 70s. Were these operating on parallel tracks or was it that conservatives interest in the presidency just caused them to to sort of shrug off Congress? So you're absolutely right that back dating back to the era of the New Deal, conservatives had been suspicious of the presidency. They had this sort of anti-Caesarist program where, where they suspected FDR of tyranny, of, of running rampant over Americans' liberties. And people like Robert Taft uh, were seen as sort of bastions of congressional government. Um, that was the dominant conservative position back in the 1940s and, and 50s. Um, but it sort of receded as the Cold War gained in prominence. And as, of course, Republicans went into the congressional minority in, in 19, after the 1954 midterm elections and stayed there, even as they held the White House um, some, of, some of the time, you know, after Nixon's election in 1968. So it's after Nixon's election that you really see a decisive shift where conservatives start to say, hey, we better use the presidency for all it's worth and realize its possibilities and, and stop yammering on about congressional government when, hey, we're the permanent minority in Congress. Um, and so you start to see conservatives build up more of these themes where Congress is seen as sort of hand in glove with the permanent government. Uh, it's these iron triangles, right, uh, of, uh, of interest groups, congressional committees, and bureaucratic agencies. And that's what good presidential management needs to press up against and dislodge. Um, so you see that in the Nixon and Ford administrations. Uh, as I point out in the paper, there's these veterans of the Ford administration, uh, Donald Rumsfeld and, and Dick Cheney, who are, are very much uh, responsible for shaping a lot of Republican attitudes about the presidency later on. Um, and and then certainly in the Reagan administration, there's just that that older view of Republicans as, as defenders of congressional government is, is really lost. Reagan, sort of the era of presidential management par excellence. And, um, and I'd say the break with that 
past tradition is, is nearly complete at that point. But part of my purpose in this paper is to try to say there are resources there that, that conservatives today thinking about the possibilities of congressional government ought to draw on. Now, on that era in the 70s, obviously a lot's been written on the intellectual history of the conservative movement. But I remember years ago, Jack Goldsmith did a fascinating sort of double book review in The New Republic. He was reviewing a book by John Yu and one by Gary Wills. And he really traces the evolution of conservative thought on executive power through the 70s, even going through old issues of National Review's editorials. It's fascinating. Uh, Molly, thanks for your patience. Um, very curious to hear your thoughts on, on, on the, the narrative that, that Phil is weaving in this paper. Does this seem, uh, does this seem apt to you or, or what's your take on this era in, in congressional government? Yeah. So for me, one of the sort of most useful things about Phil's paper and his kind of accounting of this period, um, uh, uh, and the degree to which conservative antipathy towards Congress made it difficult for Congress or for conservatives to reform the legislature <clears throat> and the administ- in, the, in the administrative state is this discussion of the effects of uh, conservatives and the Republican Party having spent so long in the congressional minority. So I think um, uh, uh, one of the most important contributions of the, the paper, I think, is to our understanding of that long, the role of that long period of democratic majority control to the development of the contemporary Congress. Um, so I am personally um, kind of separate from Phil's work, quite partial to um, the work of political scientist Francis Lee on how the rise of macro-political competition towards the end of the period that Phil is looking at, uh, that helps explain current levels of partisanship in Congress. And so I think that what Phil's work here on the effects of that period on the contemporary Republican Party is really uh, is really important. And um, I'll say that Phil does a really nice job of kind of documenting that conservative um, antipathy towards Congress. I could say I learned a lot from the, particularly the discussion of Reagan era Republican views on Congress um, as an institution. Um, I also, I also say that the discussion of uh, the role of divisions within the Republican party. So the way that Phil puts it says the Republican majority was far from uniformly conservative. Um, that is an obstacle to vigorous reform, I think is, um, is it another really important feature of the, the paper? And I think that that also has some consequences for what the work can tell us about the current moment. Molly, how do you see the current moment? So um, I will, I'm going to actually uh, take that and pair it a little bit, a little bit back in a couple questions that Phil's paper left me with about the, the current moment. And I, I found myself um, thinking a lot as I, as I, do often, but certainly in the context of reading this paper of some work on the Contemporary Congress by um, Phil's uh, now colleague at AI, um, Yuval Levin, um, who whose work um, actually has, sh- has shaped my thinking on the on the current Congress very significantly, and where he talks about, um, and I'm, I'm just going to quote here from his um, his book, um, A Time to Build, where he says that quote, many members of Congress have come to understand themselves most fundamentally as players in a larger cultural ecosystem. The point of which is not legislating or governing, but rather a kind of performative outrage for a partisan audience. And so I that assessment of the contemporary Congress um, uh, feels quite correct to me. And one thing that I, I'd love to hear Phil talk more about um, is whether that, well, first, whether he kind of agrees with Yuval's take, but then if he does, does he Phil, do you think that's kind of a cause or an effect of 
what you've discussed about the period that Republicans spent in the minority and what it's meant for uh, them in the period they've been in the majority in Congress? Well, thanks, Molly. Um, So I think there was an an effect of being in this minority for so many years, and, and I should say that I'm very influenced in some of my thinking about this by a book that should get more attention by the late great uh, political scientist, Dick Fenno. It's, it's published uh, by Brookings press. It's called learning to govern an institutional view of the 104th Congress. And it's a really nice little book where, where he takes a look at, um, at, at what Republicans attitudes were as they took over the majority in, in 1995. And is really just amazed at the extent to which sort of they they view institutionalism as part and parcel of a certain policy agenda that they don't like, right? As as inextricably bound up in the government that the great society created, um, and that and that they're out to contest. Um, and so again, they their their approach in that Congress is really to throw themselves against it with with maximal violence uh, and rhetorical violence and not always a real plan for how to get to the number of votes they need to pass legislation that will actually change the policy on the ground. Um, And and so, as Molly said, you know, their coalition uh, was, was not 250 conservative, really, conservative members, right? There were still a lot of liberal Republicans back in those days from upstate New York and Connecticut and places that don't send Republican members to Congress today, but, but did then. And, and the, the GOP conference back then wasn't that good at getting a sense of what it's real sort of wasn't, wasn't that good at doing the art of the possible. Um, and figuring out what its conference could, could push across the line. Um, so I, I think that that was just decisively shaped how the Republicans came into the majority in 1995. And I guess one could argue that sort of the mold that Gingrich created as speaker has been really influential throughout this whole era of, of partisan tight composition that, that Francis Lee has described, right? In, in some ways, when I think about Nancy Pelosi's two speakerships, they remind me a lot of, of Gingrich's in, in many ways, um, in, in sort of just how high a premium she's put on defining a stark contrast with, with the Republican president, right? Um, it's, not, it's not really been about you know there are there are exceptions. You can think of the trade deal that Pelosi decided to do uh, with, with with Trump. Um, but, that, but, I mean, she did a, the same the same thing happened in her first speakership, uh, sort of trade deal that she did um, uh, with with Bush. And so, right, I think fair that's enough. A, and then certainly in some of the crisis responses, yeah. which I've written about elsewhere, um, the congressional leaders, including Pelosi, have come together with the presidential administration. But really, a lot of what the dis- What's distinctive about Pelosi's government governing style is setting out this democratic agenda that is just has no chance in hell of passing, 
but it is designed to sort of create a stark contrast with with the Republican Party and and set things up for the next election, such that Democrats are are best positioned to go to the polls. And in some ways, I think that's what Gingrich was about. He thought that by by putting Clinton on his back foot. Republicans would be able to push him over and would be able to take the White House pretty easily in 1996. And that would be that would be the strategy for changing, changing the nature of government. Um, Sort of compromise has not been has not been the order of the day ever since. um, You know, arguably, that was the world Gingrich accommodated himself to not invented. Right. And I've written elsewhere about the contributions that Speaker Jim Wright made to this feeling that there, the compromise, the era of compromises was kind of at an end. Um, so I, I, I do agree that some of this seems to be dictated by just the tight competition between the parties. I, I also find Francis Lee's account very compelling in, in many ways, but I still think um, in terms of how that translates into what is Congress's orientation toward legislating? I don't think it's always so clear. In some ways, you can have very highly partisan actors who are still willing to do deals and compromise. That's, and, that's not necessarily ruled out by a high polarization. And I think that actually, um, so uh, there's a so Francis has a has a new a new book with um, with Jim Curry that actually makes this very argument that um, uh, that there. The contemporary Congress, even in its very high levels of partisanship, does continue to to do some to uh, to do some deals. Um, and I, I I think that um, uh, part of why um, I kind of raised this um, again to to draw uh, attention to the contribution that your your paper makes here to our understanding of this long period of the Democratic majority and the Republican minority is I I don't think we talk about that enough. As a, a kind of driver of Congress's institutional development and its identity as an organization, in and what that means for um, for the for the current Congress, you know, um, Phil and I have both been involved in various ways in in efforts to to make reforms to the House um, in recent years, and the the sort of thinking about I I don't think we do enough thinking about Congress as an organization and as you know, a place that's made up of people who are trying to do a job and uh, what that means for how it works. And so I think that, um, again, one of the things that I really like about um, what Phil brings to the table here is pushing us to think about, well, this is how the organization was arranged and set up for a, a huge point in it, a huge part of the 20th century. And what does that mean for what it can actually do at this moment? I want to get back briefly, Molly, to what you asked me about Yuval's point about Congress as a platform for performances yeah. on a larger, larger cultural um, stage versus as a formative institution in and of itself. And I would just say, for me, committees and the the centrality of committees to the earlier mold of Congress, and in some sense the receding of, of committees into the background in the modern era of Congress is really at the heart of that story, of that change. Um, Newt Gingrich never had any use for committees. Um, he, you know, when he was a fiery 
backbencher, he wanted to make speeches on the House floor that could grab people by the lapels and, 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 and change what they were paying attention to. And he was very good at that. He was never somebody who, who um, wanted to studiously climb up through a, a committee hierarchy. And, um, you know, we used to say that, that, that Congress did all of its meaningful work in committees, but in the Gingrich house, it was very much every, he, he, he designed to have everything run through the leadership. He got together his leadership team on, on the first day of the 104th Congress and said, everything runs through us. That was his explicit message. And that's, that's how he wanted to run the place. And and to my mind, um, when we think about how to make Congress a place that's more of a formative institution that rewards members for really investing in serious policy work, it has to be about revitalizing committees and ensuring that work that people put in through their committee assignments is rewarded with the ability to influence policy um, rather than just going nowhere. and finding that at the end of the day, leadership does whatever it wants to do, uh, whatever the committees have been doing anyway. You keep saying that committees have receded into the background, but that's with respect to to legislation, not with respect to oversight, though, right? It seems to me that committees are a major forum for oversight hearings, uh, for bringing in people either from the administration, if you're from the opposite party, or from people outside the administration, if you're on the administration's party, and and scolding them, you know, the, the performative outrage of congressional hearings. Uh, committees play a huge role in that, and it seems to me that that one of the takeaways from the, the, the era that you trace is that, yes, the legislative process has sort of receded or been centralized, but that's been at the same time that oversight has really come to the forefront in a way that I think actually reveals something about how members of Congress see themselves and see their institution. I'm not, I tend to agree with you all on most things, and I basically agree with the point we've been raising. But I think that in a way, the performative outrage that was referred to earlier, whether it's on cable news shows in the morning or whether it's in hearings, I think it shows that the institution is shaping people to play that that sort of loud role in oversight hearings. And that that's, you know, if, if ambition is going to counteract ambition and the interests of the office holder are attached to the rights of the place, it seems to me that the leading right of the place right now is one of oversight and that they're channeling their ambition into that, into that role. Or am I, am I overstating things? So I think that um, thinking about kind of the role of committees in oversight, um, we need to sort of differentiate between types of oversight behavior. So the the sort of um, uh, uh, kind of performative outrage, the using your five minutes of question time to produce something that's going to be on on cable news or or go viral on on the internet. That there there is value in that. Um, uh, uh, Josh Chaffetz, who's a, a law professor at Georgetown, likes to talk about congressional overspeech, um, and so there there is value in kind of getting using those moments to try to get the the witness um, uh, on the record to have them make public commitments to things. Um, I am of the mind that um, most of the really meaningful congressional oversight work actually happens 
more out of the public eye. Um, one of the, um, there's a project I've been working on at, at Brookings um, during this current Congress where we tr- we've been trying to track oversight in the House. And we, so I read a lot of letters that House committees send to the executive branch. Um, and so, and those have, those are much more about actually trying to, um, to uncover um, information. And we've, I think uh, for me, we've reached a point in kind of the oversight um uh, you you talked before about the, the different kinds of oversight we observe under unified versus divided party control, which is um, I think a huge challenge um, in the in the current um, in the current Congress. Um, and that one of the one of the most interesting uh, trends to me in 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 recent years is the way that um, because um, we've gotten to a point where an executive branch of one party tends to be pretty intransigent against efforts by um, a congressional majority of the other party to oversee their behavior. We've seen Congress um, <clears throat> actually do some interesting adaptations um, where they've started increasingly going to non-governmental actors who, and this, the, the proliferation of the, uh, their ability to do so is in part uh, driven by the fact that, you know, there are more and more non-governmental actors who are involved in implementing government policy. That itself is a, a question about the administrative state that we can talk about. Uh, but kind of the need to go, um, uh, or the ability to go to folks who hold government contracts, um, and ask them for the information that there, that, uh, Congress is not actually getting from, um, uh, from the administration it's, itself. So this is, all, this is all to say that oversight is a really um, Im- important part of what Congress does. It's been a really important part of what Congress has done for a long time. And I, I do think that for individual members, there is this, particularly if you're a rank and file member, particularly if you don't feel like you have a sense of efficacy in the legislative process, that some of the, some of what we're seeing in the oversight context is kind of displacing, is, is that ambition and and that kind of goal-seeking behavior being displaced from legislation to oversight? Uh, on oversight, let me just read a, read a sentence from my paper, um, which is referring to a speech made by uh, our Attorney General William Barr um, that he made in, in November 2019. Um, so I say, in Barr's telling, Congress had largely abdicated its core function of legislating and turned instead to constant harassment of the executive branch, plainly designed to incapacitate it. Um, this was a very influential speech that, that Barr gave back in November. And, and as I point out, it really is remarkably consistent with some things that Barr wrote in 1987. Um, and it's clear that he thinks that a lot of how the 116th Congress, the House Democrats in this Congress have harassed President Trump is really uh, of a piece with with how Tip O'Neill and Jim Wright's Democrats used to harass the Reagan administration that he was once a part of. Um, And so I I think um, it's, it's interesting. I think often amongst congressional reform folks, there's a tendency to say, yeah, rah, rah, oversight. What could be bad about overseeing the executive branch? There is this very strong conservative critique that's out there, though, where, where it says, you know, oversight is no substitution for legislation. In fact, it's a way for Congress to meddle in affairs that are properly part of administration that it really should have no part in. 
Congress wants to micromanage uh, particular kinds of personnel decisions and, and particular managerial relationships, but at the end of the day, it doesn't give clear policy guidance through its legislating. And so you have this specter of a Congress dominated by a kind of largely performative oversight um, that doesn't then hook up into its core legislative function. Um, and I think um, that, that that critique, I think, resonated uh, to some degree with, with me. I, I think there's something to it. Um, and so I think we have to ask sort of is it, what, what, what constitutional function does oversight play when it becomes decoupled from, from legislating? And, and maybe that's something we need to worry about uh, as much in our Congress today as back in the 1980s. It, so, it resonated a bit, not just with you, but also it seems with, well, with Judge Naomi Rao, who, you know, full disclosure, once again, you know, founded the center um, in her D.C. Circuit opinion in one of the oversight cases. And then it resonated a little bit. There were themes of it in the majority opinion in the, the House subpoena cases. Was it the Trump versus Mazars, I think, yeah, that, um, where those cases, the, that litigation was sort of a stark reminder that, you know, we don't conservatives none of us really have a, a strong theory of Congress, but also just looking at the, the individual work that Congress does and trying to say, well, is this is this work that it's doing part of its core mission of Congress, whatever that might be? Is it peripheral? Does it have to be justified by reference to a legislative process? Does it justify itself? And anyway, Molly, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, so um, this actually is a, is a good sort of um, maybe jumping off point for another question that I had for, for Phil that I was um, left with um, after reading the paper, which is, um, so Phil, you were just talking about kind of the, the Reagan era critique um, of uh, kind of congressional meddling in, in the affairs of um, the executive branch um, versus the, the current critique. And when I was um, kind of reading that discussion in the paper, I was, I was thinking about whether we need to think differently about these dynamics in the foreign policy space versus the domestic policy space. So one of the things that you you, you sort of um, discuss uh, about the Reagan era is kind of congressional um, attempts to um, micromanage, if you will, some uh, individual foreign policy decisions um, that that were being made. Um, and uh, I'm I'm curious if you think that um, there there is a conceptual difference between how we should think about Congress's role vis-a-vis -vis the executive in the in those two spaces. Has that changed over time, um, particularly post September 11th? What what does that what does that mean for how we should think about um, uh, conservatives uh, kind of theory of Congress. Yeah, well, I certainly think that there was a persuasive case articulated that foreign policy is a realm where Congress has to satisfy itself with, with being a secondary actor, um, that because of the structure of the Constitution, because of the structure of, of, of running diplomacy through the White House and the State Department, um, Congress really has to take its cues from the executive branch and, and certainly deserves to be able to second guess and 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 uh, counterbalance those to some degree, but but really can't expect to be the primary driver. And so I think that 
the, the, the Dick Cheney-led uh, minority opinion in the Iran-Contra report um, made a very interesting argument that really Iran-Contra had resulted from Congress sort of trying to go around uh, its its standard legislative processes and, and constrain what the White House could do through appropriations riders, and it really created a mess, and it was only fair for the executive branch to try to work things uh, through outside channels at that point. Um, and I think when we look at today, um, and I think maybe this will be a nice segue to a point that I know Molly wants to talk about, um, you know, we, we've seen Congress wanting to get into the game by passing these resolutions through the War Powers Act uh, or the National Emergencies Act, um, where, where it sort of swats down the president. And you've some, in some cases, you've, you've gotten those passed through both the House and the Senate on a somewhat bipartisan basis. Uh, but then the president has vetoed them because that's a result of a feature of our modern era where this device of the legislative veto, which was very active in the foreign policy space, especially uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, invalidated in the Supreme Court decision, INS v. Chadha, uh, in the early 80s, um, leaves Congress at a real structural disadvantage where uh, it can try to pass these resolutions. And I always get the words mixed up in my head. There's joint and there's concurrent. They used to be able to pass concurrent, which means that they would just pass it between the House and the Senate, and that would be it. The president would not need to assent. We're now worried that concurrent resolutions don't carry the force of law or unconstitutional legislative veto. So now they have to pass joint resolutions, which also need the president's signature. And guess what? President Trump is not willing to smack himself down, and so he has used his veto to render these um, resolutions um, null. And, and, and so I think if Congress wants to play a more primary role in making these foreign policy decisions today, to my mind, it would ha- need to take some pretty dramatic steps to restructure the basic rules of the game because as things are right now, it, it seems like as long as the president has sort of a minority uh, coalition in Congress willing to sustain his vetoes, um, he really is going to be able to drive uh, policy to a, a really striking degree. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that Phil brought up this question of the legislative veto. So I've spent, um, uh, Adam mentioned my, my book in, in the intro, um, where I actually spent <clears throat> a fair amount of time thinking about uh, the, some of these provisions uh, not as much in, in the context of them being legislative veto provisions specifically, but in that, um, many of them, when they were created, were done so under, uh, rules that, uh, prevented the resolution from being filibustered in the Senate. So they were created with, uh, with under, uh, to provide for expedited procedures to consider the legi- the uh, resolution uh, that would effectuate the legislative veto, and so I think that one of the one of the questions that um, Phil asks in the paper that I think 
could warrant a whole other paper, if not more itself, is this question of why didn't Congress develop a more effective response to the administration, the elimination of, of the legislative veto. And uh, my suspicion is that from the perspective of many members, um, they felt like the um, sort of report and wait provisions, which um, Phil discusses as uh, Congress requiring the executive branch to tell them it's going to do something and then saying that you can't do it until we've signed off on it in some sort of formal or informal way. These report and wait provisions in the in the post chata period, I think many members probably felt like they were having the same effect um, they were they they felt like they were constraining um, the administration in similar ways using these less formal arrangements and the kind of accommodations that were being reached were, were substantively the same and then that's really started to fall apart in recent years in some when administrations started to disregard these report and wait provisions so um, there's um, a, a great example of this from the summer where the Trump administration has um, I think several times uh, indicated they may abandon this informal um, report and wait notification process for some arms sales, um, for example. And so this is a place where the kind of uh, the arrangement, the less formal arrangement that that maybe replaced a more formal legislative veto is um, is breaking down. Um, one thing I, that I've thought a lot of, or I've sort of noticed um, in in this area um, recently is is also the degree to which, um, to the extent that there remain um, some of these these provisions, um, and Phil mentioned uh, before about the, the War Powers Resolution, that they're now even if they were once imagined as a way for Congress to do something, they're now being used as a way for Congress to say something. And I actually think that that's a, um, a, a, a it's a specific case of a broader development um, in, in Congress that we've talked about um, some already. But this just this idea that um, they there there are procedural reasons why they're a useful way for Congress to say something, but that that's what they've become. They've become a way for, for Congress to do some messaging. Um, and, and that's another piece of this kind of evolution of the, the post-legislative veto world. It is interesting in tracing this, this intellectual history that Phil's paper traces. The INS Vichata case that, that struck down the constitutionality of the legislative veto, I mean, it, it really becomes sort of a seminal moment in the early conservative legal movements sort of galvanization. I mean, we, we, we look back, those of us who are inclined towards the theory of the unitary executive, you know, we look back at, at uh, INSV Chata as one of those early cases that writes the sort of wrongs of the New Deal era, begins to re-separate powers and put each of the branches in their proper places. And oh, by the way, it gets Congress out of micromanaging the executive in, in an important way. The elimination of that in the Supreme Court really does sort of fit in with that, that, that intellectual history that, that Phil is tracing. We, we referred a couple of times to Frances Lee's study of Congress. She's spoken at the Gray Center before. We keep referring back to her theory of, of unstable majorities, the idea that so much of congressional behavior um, since uh, Republicans finally retook uh, the House in the 1990s, so much of congressional behavior is dictated by the, by the fact that that it's not clear who's going to win the next congressional majority. And so both parties sort of arrange their activities with an eye to the next election. Phil's paper in, in casting the, the, the Speaker of the House as a shadow president of sorts got me thinking that maybe the other unstable majority that really affects Congress is the unstable electoral college majority, 
right? Earlier, Phil mentioned how so much of Congress's work, and Molly mentioned this too, is, is done with an eye to the next presidential election. Um, and, and I suppose, and the more I sort of think through this, especially thinking about either the speaker or a Senate majority leader, if, if it's whoever's in the opposite party of the president as a shadow presidency, it really is with an eye to that next presidential election, holding hearings that can position the party for the election, uh, having casting votes that sort of forces the other party to, to take positions that might undercut them in the next election. You know, so much of Congress's activity really is geared around that next presidential election. And the fact that we live in a time when the Electoral College really has been sort of a knife's edge for, I mean, it's felt like that way, I guess, since Bush v. Gore, um, really has had a distinct gravitational pull on the work that Congress does and, and the way that members of Congress see their work. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I have a, um, a, a grad school colleague who has a, a new book out. Um, his name is Jerry Gelman and the book is called Losing to Win. And it's this idea, the whole point of the book is this idea that congressional majorities, when they can't actually, uh, when they're not in a position to make laws, do all kinds of things to try to signal to voters what they might do if they had more power after the after the next election. And so, you know, in the case of a, a Congress where um, one or both houses are controlled by one party and the presidency is controlled by the other party, part of what um, Congress that that majority in Congress sees its uh, best strategy as is trying to show voters what would happen um, if they uh, if they were to um, to elect a president of their party, and then the question is, when you do that, what happens when you can't deliver um, on, on on the promise? And I, I think that that we obviously saw that happen um, in some uh, some cases with the Trump administration and the Republican Congress in 2017. I think there's a um, uh, a decent chance we see that in some cases if we see unified Democratic Party control in 2021. Um, so this this kind of setting voters up for for disappointment is uh, is an important piece of this too. Bill, what do you think? Uh, I just want to say that this attitude is is really highlighting the importance of, of what I talk about with this lack of a positive vision for what the legislature is supposed to be. Right? If all Congress is is an institution for framing presidential elections. That's my how the mighty have fallen, right? I mean, that's not what Congress used to be in the mid-20th century. I think arguably Congress really was the primary shaper of the administrative state uh, in, in many ways, um, that it built in part during the Nixon administration, right? It wasn't because President Nixon wanted it built that way. Um, and I think, um, you know, this, this whole idea that what's, what the real public policy choices of import are going to be made by the president, the administrative state, and the Supreme Court. And so what matters is, you know, getting your president in there, who then will get your judges in there. I, th- I think it's just a remarkably prevalent view amongst educated people in this country now. And, and frankly, Given the way that Congress has evolved and now conducts itself, it's not a crazy way of thinking at all. It's very tempting, but not to be too dramatic about it. But to me, in some ways, that's sort of the end of Republican self-government in America when we start to think that way. Um, That's uh, the, the idea that we send our representatives to elect our real sovereigns 
is just fundamentally un-American. And we need to have an idea of Congress where our representatives are actually the ones driving the big policy choices we make because that, that's what self-government is all, is all about. So that's, that's sort of the challenge for building a, a conservative idea of what a legislature is supposed to be for today. I, I think we have a long way to go, but, but that's, that's my project. Well, why don't we end on a, on a hopeful note um, in light of everything we've discussed? And I'll start with Molly and then we'll, we'll finish with Phil. Uh, which procedural reforms or structural reforms within Congress do you think are most, uh, most needed to reorient Congress back towards its proper constitutional role, especially with respect to modern administration? It's sort of a big picture question, but, but um, Molly, is there anything that you would start with? It's a it's a huge picture question. Um, I think for me, um, the this gets a little bit back to the the question of um, so the questions of oversight that we were talking about before is that there are some um, there are some. I think things that have some bipartisan support uh, that, um, and, and Phil and I um, have talked about this, that have some bipartisan support um, around um, the appropriations process um, and around things like apportionment transparency and getting, um, just making some changes that mean that, that reinvigorate Congress's power of the purse in a way that um, uh, kind of allows Congress to, to have more uh more influence over uh, uh and better oversight over how it's um uh, the money it appropriates actually gets um gets spent um so i think there's that's that's where i'd start 100% endorse what what molly said um you know i think the power of the purse is the best place to focus on where we can push congress toward doing and not saying um but it's going to take some work because they're so used to being on autopilot on a lot of appropriations, and it's almost become heresy to imagine that you might aggressively use the power of the purse. And I'd also say we need to think about practical steps we can take to re-empower committees. And an idea that I've become attracted to is that you guarantee committees some amount of floor access for some amount of bills to each Congress, that you say, uh, listen, we, we say if you're going to put the work in and maybe achieve some bipartisan consensus uh, on, on a signature bill for this Congress, um, then you're going to get to put it to, to a floor vote. It's not just going to get mixed up in all of the deal making that runs through the leadership where it may just get lost in the mix. I think that would fundamentally help change the incentives for, for, for members who have come to doubt um, whether quietly laboring in committees is really a sensible use of their time. Well, I'm glad you both mentioned the power of the purse. As it happens, one of the Gray Center's uh, spring research roundtables is focused on new scholarship on the power of the purse and, and administration. Uh, and those papers, I guess, will see the light of the day, um, well, I guess about a year from now. Um, in the meantime, though, again, I'm very grateful to, to Molly and Phil for joining us. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Adam. And I really encourage our listeners, again, to look up uh, Philip Wallach's paper in our working paper series. It's titled The Revolution Then Wasn't, Conservatives Against Congress, 1981 to 2018. That, along with all the other papers in this uh, mini-series on the first branch, are available on our website. And please tune in to our other podcast episodes in this mini-series on Congress. Thanks, as always, for joining us. 
Join us again for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. 